And this is what Paul writes. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Last month in the March, month of March, month of March, uh, the elders of the church made a decision that we weren't going to meet in person uh, until April the 19th. As I'm sure most of you are aware at this point, uh, that the situation regarding the coronavirus has not improved. And so last week, the elders made a decision that we were going to continue to practice government uh, direction and. And so we are not going to be meeting in person. Fortunately, though, we do have gatherings where we can meet online. And so if you would like to, to join us on Sunday mornings, we've been meeting in the mornings uh, for about an hour, 20 minutes, uh, to get together, to pray, to sing together, just to, to see each other's faces, which has been a really rich experience for many of us. And, and so I would encourage you to, if you would like to be a part of that, uh, you don't need to have a computer. You can, you can just call in as well and just be a part of the conversation. Uh, we'd love it if you joined us. And so you just have to reach out to us at the church and, uh, and we'll make sure that we get, we get you the right information so that you can join us. As I was preparing and, and reflecting on this message this morning, I was, I was reminded, I was drawn to a story uh, of a lady named Alma Gericke. She got In June 1946, Alma Gericke received a letter from Germany where her husband Henry was serving the U.S. Army as a chaplain. Alma, lived in, living in St. Louis at the time, opened the letter, expecting a letter from her husband. Instead, she read these words from a group of men her husband was tasked with sharing the gospel with. This is what it said. We have heard, dear Mrs. Gericke, that you wish to see your husband, Henry, back home after his absence of several years. Because we also have wives and children, we understand this wish of yours very well. Nevertheless, we are asking you to put off your wish to gather your family around you at home for a little time. Please consider that we cannot miss your husband now. It is necessary for us, not only as a minister, but also as the thoroughly good man that he is. Surely we need not describe him as such to his own wife. We simply have come to love him. It is impossible for any other man than him to break through the walls that have been built up around us. In a spiritual sense, even stronger than a material one. Therefore, please leave him with us. 
Certainly you will bring this sacrifice and we shall be deeply indebted to you. We send you our best wishes for you and your family. God be with you. Now this letter seems like a strong plea from a group of men who have grown to appreciate the efforts of this man, Henry Garricky, as he shared the message of truth and grace and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. These men whose letter seems both gentle and gracious were actually the antithesis for what they were known for. You see, this letter that was written was written and signed by 21 Nazi officials who were to stand trial in Nuremberg. Earlier that year, Henry Garricky was assigned to minister to these 21 men while they stood trial. These 21 men were responsible for contributing to the Nazi Holocaust efforts during World War II. Henry Garricky was quoted as saying that he imagined that simply feeling their breath on his face would be sickening. Yet he met with each of them, shook their hands, offered communion to each one, and told them of the hope and grace they could each experience in Jesus. And the question that Henry had to wrestle with during this time is this. How do you sincerely present the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who you want to go to hell? How do you sincerely present the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who you genuinely, sincerely want to go to hell? And I imagine for many of us, we might say, well, you don't. There are some people whose actions are so atrocious that we can't look past. How does the hope of Christ apply to those people whose actions are so horrendous that we can't see past them? Well, as we explore Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, that's the kind of hatred that we are entering into in this passage. Where Paul is actually addressing a deep animosity between two groups of people that very few people have experienced in their lifetimes. Present day, we might be able to associate it very comparable to the hatred that Islamic fundamentalists have towards the West. The hatred was deep, and often it was mutual. And these two groups that, that Paul is addressing, the Jews and the Gentiles, are, are, are the people that he's talking to here. We see this immediately where Paul refers to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised. And he refers, refers to the Jews as the circumcision. But it's not until we discover the intensity that the hate, of the hatred that existed between these two groups that we discover that, that what Paul is addressing, what he's saying here, is actually racist terms, racist slurs that were being directed towards the Gentiles from the Jews. The uncircumcised is a derogatory term that the Jews would use to describe the Gentiles. Now in the context of Ephesians, the Gentiles are non-Jews who didn't profess faith in the God of Israel. In this particular context, primarily the Romans. And the Jews had a deep hatred toward the Romans for a number of reasons. One of the other complicating uh, factors within this, this tension was that the Jews understood that they were the chosen race in the eyes of God. And as a result, it created this sense of superiority, this sense of spiritual arrogance amongst the Jews. The Gentiles had their own issues, of course, as they considered the Jews to be a stain on the earth that they absolutely hated. And this claim of superiority that the Jews made was an offense to the Romans who claimed their own divine superiority. 
When the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles goes as deep as religious resentment and self-righteousness compounded with decades of fighting and resentment and oppression, it makes it almost impossible for these two groups of people to see eye to eye. Which is what makes what Paul is writing to the to the, the which is what makes what Paul is writing in this letter to the Ephesians so scandalous. See, as the Gentiles began to receive Jesus, the Christian Jews said, Well, that's fine. But you need to start practicing all the things that we Jews were doing before Jesus came along. These would be things like practicing dietary laws, practicing Sabbath, and circumcision. Unfortunately, the Christian Jews had this really unhealthy understanding of limited atonement. Paul, though, isn't saying, you know, those practices aren't bad, but instead what he's saying is those things aren't required for salvation purposes. They're good, they may be good personal practices for some of you, but none of these activities can erase the sin choices that you have made or will continue to make throughout your life. The scandal of this text reveals to us that the foot of the cross is flat and that all of us, Jews or Gentiles, need to be reconciled to Christ in order to be reconciled to one another. Paul tells us in verse 17 that Jesus came to preach those who are far away and those who were near. That Jesus came to preach peace to both sides. You know, it doesn't matter whether I am near my house or far from my house, I'm still not at my house. The gap between the destination is irrelevant if I never get to the destination. Now in the Greek, the wording in verse 17 is even stronger than we read here. Where we read that Jesus doesn't just give us peace, but that he actually is peace. That one of the defining characteristics of Jesus is that through Jesus, peace can be achieved because his very nature is peace. In nine, eight, nine months from now, we're going to be singing songs and recognizing that peace is on earth. This is the heart of this passage from Paul here, that in spite of the intense differences between the Jews and the Gentiles, that peace can be achieved, but it will only happen through Jesus Christ. Now in verse 15, Paul tells us that one new humanity is created from two. One of the things that, that I've started doing in this past year or so has been, as a kind of a hobby of mine, is to start making my own ice cream. And over the last few months, I've, I've started experimenting a little bit, and I actually have begun to create my own ice cream cakes. And so the fir very first ice cream cake that I made was actually for myself, kind of testing it out on myself to see how it, how it worked. And so I made myself a banana, banana split ice cream cake. I made one layer was banana ice cream, a second layer was strawberry ice cream, a third layer was chocolate ice cream. Now, the process for making ice cream is actually fairly simple. It just takes time. You have to separate egg, egg yolks from the whites. You have to warm up the cream. You have to cool the cream. You have to add sugar and eggs. And, and you're creating this custard. And then after it's cooled, you can begin to add other flavors like the bananas or the strawberries or whatever. The process does feel a little too much like chemistry, but the result is worth it in the end. One of the realities, though, is that although there's, a, there's only a handful of ingredients to make ice cream, and in and of themselves they are good and useful, when they're mixed together, a couple of things happen. One... It's now just one thing. The eggs are indistinguishable from the cream. The cream is indistinguishable from the sugar. It is all one part now. 
two. It can't, even now, when it's, when it's now one thing, and now it can't, number two, it can't be separated. Once everything is to mixed together, even when, it's, even when I strain the, the, the mixture with a super fine colander, the mixture is together, and the eggs can't be removed from it any longer. You can't separate it any further. And three, it is so much better together than apart. Some of us, if we drank a liter of cream, a cup of egg, egg yolks, and a bowl of sugar, some of us may enjoy that, I guess. But if I handed you a slice of the ice cream cake that I made, you would notice a substantial improvement in the flavor. Paul is reminding them that, reminding them that as the church, that it's no longer us and them. It's no longer Jews and Gentiles. But instead it's us together Uniting the two, where Jesus has united the two groups together into one. And as Paul writes, into a holy temple. That any barrier that may have existed between the us versus them has suddenly been lifted. And we see throughout this section of scripture, Paul actually uses all kinds of temple imagery here to make his point. Where we see in verse 14, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility has been removed. Most commentators think that Paul is making a not-so-subtle so, not so nod to the five-foot wall that existed in the temple that was intended to separate worshiping Jews from the Gentiles. This wall would have prevented any Gentiles who, who may have genuinely come to the temple hoping to worship and offer sacrifices to God. Instead, they were welcomed with this warning instead. No man of another nation is to enter within the fence and enclosure around this temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. Now can you imagine if we hung that in front of our churches? Yikes. Paul says though that the dividing wall is removed, that accessibility to God is for anyone, not just for the Jews, but it's for Gentiles as well. The hostility between Jews and Gentiles has been lifted through Jesus who we read is the chief cornerstone. Again, this is another example of Paul's temple language. The Gentiles would have understood the significance of the cornerstone from their exposure in the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. The Jews would have understood the significance of the cornerstone from their exposure in the temple in Jerusalem. The cornerstone on either temple was one of the larger stones put in place at the foundation of the temple. Now the function of the cornerstone was to join together the stone walls and build up from that point. The cornerstone was a foundational piece that was used to build the rest of the structure off of. Paul is saying that Christ is the foundation that we continue to build off of as his holy people. As he unites us together and continues to build the body of Christ up like temple walls. Jews and Gentiles... And it's in this passage that Jews and Gentiles' corrective mindset towards salvation and unity and how the Jews and Gentiles relate to each other through Christ. The reality is, though, is that reconciliation seems good on paper, but it's not always easy to give up the grudge. Or we hear about these sensational stories and forget that reconciliation can be as simple as resolving a conflict with a family member or neighbor or spouse. Now if you're like me, these past few weeks you've maybe had some time to reflect on what's important in life. 
And I know for myself, I've laid awake in bed at times praying for my family, my kids, my wife Natalie. I've spent time praying for the church and the economy and, and my finances in the community of Calgary. There's a number of things that I pray for. But you know who I don't typically pray for? The people that have wounded me or hurt me. Many of you are familiar with the story of forgiveness and reconciliation that Corey Ten Boom experienced in her life. This is part of her story. In mid-May 1945, the Allies marched into Holland to the unspeakable joy of the Dutch people. Despite the distractions of her work, Corey was still restless and she desperately missed her beloved sister Betsy. But now she remembered Betsy's words, that they must tell others what they had learned. Thus began more than three decades of travel around the world as, as she says, tramp for the Lord. She told people her story of God's forgiveness of sins and of the need for people to forgive those who have harmed her. Corey herself was put to the test in 1947 while speaking in a Munich church. At the close of the service, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Corey froze. She knew this man well. He'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrück, one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. She says it came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And now he was pushing his hand out to shake hers and saying, A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And she says, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has, give, has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. Froloin. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven. And could not forgive? Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? The soldier stood there expectantly, waiting for Corey to shake his hand. Corey said she wrestled with the most difficult thing she'd ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not an emotion. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. Corey thrust out her hand. And as she did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in her shoulder, raced down her arm, and sprang into their joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, 
I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. If Paul is calling the Gentiles and Jews into reconciliation, if Corey Tenboom can offer forgiveness for her hurts, then surely that applies to you and I when it comes to our relationships. In his book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy offers three perspectives to help us to achieve, to pursue reconciliation. One, glorify God. Two, get the log out of our own eye. And three, gently restore. Glorify God, get the log out of my own eye, and gently restore. At the root of reconciliation in Ephesians, or in Corey Tenboom's story, there was a deep understanding that one of our chief objectives as followers of Christ is to glorify Christ, is to reflect Jesus. One of the ways that we bring glory to God is the way that we live at peace with other people. It's actually a product of His Spirit at work in our lives. Now that doesn't mean that conflict is unhealthy. Conflict can be really important and necessary. Lacking peace, however, in our lives and relationships, that's what's unhealthy. Occasionally, I'll have someone, ask me, I'll have someone express their desire to be used by God. The first thing I would, that I would ask someone who has this desire, who says, I want to be used by God, the first thing that I would ask is, are you at peace with the people around you? Are you at peace with the people around you? Because it's impossible to live out the gospel fully if you have unreconciled relationships. Let me say that again. It's impossible to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ fully if you have unreconciled relationships. Being reconciled to someone isn't denying that there is a hurt or a wound that someone has caused. Instead, reconciliation actually validates the experiences and hurts that you have had. Reconciliation doesn't minimize that experience or dismiss the offender from doing it. Instead, reconciliation actually recognizes that a wound was caused and that you are seeking to find healing from what, from what the offender has done. For some of us, Reconciliation is a subject that is really painful and difficult. Because there's such a deep hurt and wound that has been caused by another person. And so I don't want this, this portion of my scripture to minimize your experience. So if that's you, it might require someone else to help walk you through that process. If that's your situation, maybe there's things going on, going on in your marriage or a relationship with a sibling or co-worker or your parents. It might be worth getting an outsider's perspective to objectively help you walk through those steps of reconciliation. Because often what happens, though, is when we've been hurt by someone, is we, we develop this hardened posture when we start saying things like, we may not say it out loud, but maybe we say it in our hearts or our minds. I'm not talking to that person until they say sorry first. Or we think, after what they have done to me, I've got nothing to say to them. And we create this wall or resistance when it comes to reconciliation. But regardless of what you profess faith in Jesus or not, 
Regardless of whether you say that I, I follow Jesus or I don't, it's important that, that we have reconciled relationships. When we, we, one of the ways that we can do that is by looking at ourselves internally. Asking ourselves, what have I done to contribute to this unhealthy relationship? That's how we can begin to, to get the plank out of our own eye. Jesus tells us before we can take the speck out of someone else's eye, we need to take the log out of our own. Now, if you've ever had an eyelash stuck in your eye, you know how uncomfortable that is. You know that it's noticeable. I think the same thing applies to unreconciled relationships, where we know that there is something unresolved between ourselves and someone. Maybe some of you are thinking of someone or some situation, even now. As we inspect the log in our own eye, we need to ask ourselves openly and honestly, what have I done to contribute to this unhealthy relationship? What do I need to take ownership and responsibility over and bring to the other person? Now that might not change anything in terms of the reconciliation between you and another person. But now what has happened is you've actually taken responsibility for your part in that. You've taken responsibility for your actions. You've actually taken the first step towards reconciliation, which is actually usually the hardest step to take. The idea behind getting the plank out of our own eye is that it allows us to develop a posture of humility when the time comes to gently confront someone. By identifying the log in our own eye, it helps us to separate our own hurt and woundedness from the actual offense. Then we can say, I've done all I can do to help this relationship, and now the ball's in your court. Now, we can't control what the other person does with the ball. All we can do is take responsibility for ourselves in this process. But reconciliation starts when we ask ourselves, what is, my what is my responsibility to the relationships God has put in my life? Let me say that again. Reconciliation starts when we ask ourselves, what is my responsibility to the relationships God has put in my life? Much like Corey Ten Boom's remarkable story, as we lay down our rights like Jesus did, we actually begin to reveal the character of Jesus to those around us. We begin to draw attention to his goodness and grace in our lives as we live it out. Reconciliation isn't giving someone a list of grievances that someone has made against us. But instead, as we seek to live out Christ's character, we approach others in a spirit of love and invite them into a redemptive restoration where they can turn from their mistakes and we can help them to see Christ's plan for them and their relationships. Often it's hard to approach someone who has caused emotional scars graciously. The Jews and Gentiles were no different. But Paul points us to the example of Christ and writes that, that both the Jews and Gentiles weren't at peace with God that we were children of his wrath. But Jesus looks at us with mercy and sorrow. He knows the brokenness and lostness that we, that we live in and chooses to extend grace instead of wrath so we could be reconciled to him. Galatians 6.1 invites us to be part of a healing process for others, to restore others to community within God's kingdom. The goal in reconciliation 
isn't to prove our own rightness or someone else's wrongness. We are all people who are at one point or another separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship with Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, we who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Paul reminds us that we have a privilege of joining with others as a holy temple built on the foundation of Jesus, our peace. But the goal of reconciliation is to live out the peace of Christ in our relationships the way Paul calls the Gentiles and Jews to do the same. And as we do that, we actually break down the dividing walls of hostility and reveal Christ to those around us. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to have this example, have these words for us to, to reflect on for our own hearts, our own relationships, our own lives. Lord, we recognize that there may be faces, there may be names that, that come to mind even now that we have to make right. Would you help us to make the first step? Would you help us to, to take the plank out of our own eyes? Would you help us to, to not minimize our hurts, but, rec- but actually validate them? God, we long for, for healing. We pray for your peace in our lives. We pray for peace in our relationships. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.